turn in your Bibles to Mark chapter 13. We're looking at the verses you just heard read. And as we do, I can hardly imagine a more terrifying scenario than running for your life with some powerful, violent men chasing you, seeking to capture you, seeking to bring you in for questioning, to interrogate you, seeking to imprison you, to torture you, perhaps ultimately even to kill you. I can hardly imagine a more terrifying scenario than that. It was a scene that was played out again and again in the dark days of World War II. Nazi troops would win battles and conquer territories, and on their heels would come the SS and the Gestapo who would seek to weed out every Jewish person and every perceived threat to the Nazi state, including Christian leaders. So refugees would have to flee in the middle of the night, breathlessly waiting under bridges while their Nazi pursuers would travel over them, so close they could hear their conversations. Others fled by train using falsified travel permits. They had to endure the suspense of Gestapo agents moving systematically through the rail cars, checking papers, asking questions. Others fled through mountain passes into Switzerland, avoiding Nazi roadblocks only by scaling forbidden mountainsides in the snow and during freezing temperatures. Some hid among baggage and crates on freight ships, their hearts beating wildly and beads of sweat forming on their brows as Nazi guards with German shepherds were inspecting the cargo holds where they were hiding, getting closer and closer to their secret positions. Now, all of these refugees were fleeing because of terror, fleeing the might of the most sinister and powerful force of evil the world had ever seen up to that time. But I believe all of those experiences of fleeing are as nothing compared to the days that will come right before the end of the world, the days when the Antichrist will be ruling the world by the direct power of Satan himself seeking to exterminate anyone who refuses to worship him as God. Brothers and sisters, I don't know if that day will come in our lifetime, but this text implies that we are to get ready for those days. We are to get ready for what is coming. When Jesus says, I have told you everything ahead of time, that implies a certain weight of responsibility on us, on me as a as a teacher of the Word of God, on me as a father, on me as a discipler, as a preacher, all of us as Christians, take seriously these themes to immerse ourselves in them and to study them. Jesus' mentality is forewarned, is forearmed. Now, I have carefully studied uh, this text, Mark 13, 14 through 23, and compared it with the parallel text in Matthew 24, 15 through 26. They're almost completely identical with just a few simple differences. So I'm going to weave the two together where needed, but my home base is Mark 13. Now let's talk about context. Context is Jesus' statement of the destruction of the temple. Look at Mark 13, 1 and 2. As he was leaving the temple, one of his disciples said to him, Look, teacher, what massive stones, what magnificent buildings. Do you see all these great buildings? Replied Jesus. Not one stone here will be left on another. Everyone will be thrown down. Then the disciples came to Jesus in private, fuller versions in Matthew 24. Tell us, they said in Matthew 24, 3, tell us when will this happen? Not one stone left on another. And what will be the sign of your coming and of the end of the age? 
It's pretty clear that Jesus' answer soars far above the events surrounding the destruction of Jerusalem and of the temple and go right to the end of the world. Very clear if you read Mark 13, Matthew 24. Now, in this section, uh, Mark 13, in verses 5 through 13, we have the nature of the ministry of the Word of God, the progress of the Word of God between the first and second comings. That's what unifies those verses, Mark 13, 5 through 13. The focal point is us being witnesses to Him by the power of the Spirit and the ongoing persecution that will happen as the gospel spreads. That's been the story for 20 centuries. But then at verse 14, as we saw last week, there's a decisive break in the narrative and an event that's unique to people living in a certain place at a certain time. When you see the abomination of desolation... We talked about that last time. In a nutshell, it's a twofold answer. Both the desecration of the temple by Roman forces in the year AD 70, and I believe going out to the end of the world, the desecration of the temple at the end of history by the Antichrist are in view in this phrase. So last week we walked through all that. We saw how God has four times allowed the Gentiles to trample on his holy place. We talked about what that holy place was, how we understand that. And we saw it in the time of Eli when he allowed the Ark of the Covenant to be captured by the Philistines. Again, when the Babylonians destroyed Solomon's temple, burned it to the ground. In 162 BC, when the Greek king Antiochus Epiphanes sacrificed pig's blood in the temple that Haggai had rebuilt, desecrating it, as predicted in in uh, Daniel chapter 8 and Daniel 11, and then again in AD 70 when the Romans destroyed Herod's temple four times. But I also believe that it points ahead with the eschatological principle, as it was, so it will be, to one last time. All of those being dress rehearsals for a final desecration. I believe that implies, based on 2 Thessalonians 2, a rebuilt temple, rebuilt by the Jews, in what I consider to be an open defiance of the finished work of Jesus Christ on the cross. And the themes clearly articulated in the book of Hebrews, the ending of the old covenant based on animal sacrifice and the blood of bulls and lambs and goats, all of that finished at the moment that Jesus died. But an unbelieving Jewish nation with veils over their hearts and minds, unable to see in Jesus the consummation of the old covenant and unbelieving, reestablishing the curtain in the temple that was torn in two from top to bottom, showing a motive and a movement toward temple sacrifice, which went on for another generation after Jesus' death in defiance of his finished work. So, Jesus' counsel to his people, his lasting counsel, I didn't even finish, but I kind of did last week. I preached on a fragment of a verse. When you see the abomination of desolation... Dot, dot, dot. Well, this sermon's the rest of it, but I said it last week. And it's in the title of the sermon. Run for your lives. Run for your lives. What it openly says is, when you see the abomination that causes desolation, standing where it does not belong, let the reader understand, then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. And it goes on from there. In other words, run for your lives. So let's talk about it. Let's begin with the desolation that leads to the flight. And it is the spiritual desolation of Israel consummated in their rejection of the Son of God, the incarnate Son of God, and their murder of Him. 
Israel's rejection of Jesus as their Messiah is the essence of their spiritual desolation. As Jesus says at the end of Matthew 23, verses 38 and 39, he says, Behold, your house is left to you desolate, for I tell you, you will not see me again. It's pretty simple. If you put that together, two and two together, the essence of the desolation is you're not going to see me again until you say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. In other words, you recognize me by faith, that I was the one sent by Almighty God as your Savior. So until you say that, you'll be desolate, empty. So desolation means emptiness. So that spiritual desolation then leads to a physical desolation, a city of slaughter left with no inhabitants. Now, Above that or behind all that is the demonic side, a satanic and a demonic side that we need to understand. It comes very clearly in the book of Revelation chapter 12. There is this dragon clearly identified as Satan, that ancient serpent. And this dragon is standing by the sea in Revelation 13 and he calls from the sea a beast a clear connection with Daniel 7 where up out of the sea come a succession of four beasts that represent empires, represent human, political, governments, empires with military power, with economic power, etc. That's Daniel 7. We get the consummation of that in Revelation 13. And it is the dragon, it is Satan that calls the beast from the sea. Now Jesus spoke about demons. You know that Jesus drove demons out effortlessly exorcism after exorcism. People were stunned. They were amazed at his power. Even the demons are subject in his name easily. Jesus sent out his disciples and gave them the power as well to drive out demons. And so the demons were on the run, but they didn't cease existing. They didn't cease hating. They were just pushed back for a time. And Jesus warned that they're going to come back. He makes this very plain. In Matthew 12, 43 through 45, he says this, when an evil spirit comes out of a man, it goes through arid places seeking rest and doesn't find it. Then it says, I will return to the house I left. When it arrives, it finds the house unoccupied, swept clean and put in order. Unoccupied sounds like desolate to me. It's empty. Finds a house unoccupied, swept clean, put in order. Then it goes and takes seven other spirits more wicked than itself, and they go in and live there. And the final condition of that man is worse than the first. KJV says famously, the last shall be worse than the first. That is how it will be with this generation. So I thought we are talking about a man, and then we're talking about a house. Now we're talking about a whole generation. It's the same, the same, the same. When the demon goes out, it's going to come back if, it's, if the individual, if the nation is not filled with God, filled with the Spirit of God, filled with light, the darkness is coming back. We've already said that the nation of the Jews is desolate, empty, not believing in Jesus. It's ready to be reinvaded by demons. So the image that I have here is of, of an individual in the deep woods of Alaska or, or Siberia or, or Canada, and a, a ravenous pack of wolves is chasing this individual, and he's been able to start a bonfire and, and push all the pack of wolves back, 
but he can see their, their eyes surrounding his campfire. They, they're still out there in the darkness, and they still want his blood. And when that fire goes out, they're going to come flooding back in, ravenous. So we Christians, we're not secularists, materialists. We actually believe in a spiritual realm, and we believe that the events that happen in, with nations and with politics and with invasions has a demonic backing, though we cannot see it. And so I believe that it is demonic force that pushes the Romans in, and it's going to be overtly a satanic, a demonic kingdom at the end of the world. As it was, so it will be. We get these dress rehearsals. It says it twice in Luke, in Luke 17, 26. As it was in the days of Noah, so it will be at the coming of the Son of Man. And again, uh, Luke 17, 28 and 30. As it was in the days of Lot, so it will be on the day when the Son of Man is revealed. As it was, so it will be. So it's, it's a repeated principle, eschatological interpretive principle. We get things happening again and again. Dress rehearsals. Overt statement of this is in 1 John 2. You have heard that Antichrist is coming, and even now many Antichrists have come. Lots of dress rehearsals on that Antichrist theme, but there is one coming. So, as it was in the days of the Roman desecration of Jerusalem, so it will be in the days before Christ returns. As it was in the days of Antiochus Epiphanes, of Daniel 8 and Daniel 11, so it will be in the days before Christ returns. And so, the destruction of the Jewish temple and in the city of Jerusalem in the year A.D. 70 by the Romans is a dress rehearsal for the end of the world, I believe. Now, the signal to Jewish Christians living in Judea, Jewish Christians living there in Jerusalem, is you have to watch what's happening in current events, and when you see certain things, get out of the city, get out of that area, run for your lives. He says it openly in Luke 21, 20 through 22. It's just as clear as anything. You don't have to wonder about it. When you see Jerusalem being surrounded by armies, you will know that this desolation is near. Then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. Let those in the city get out. Let those in the country not enter the city, for this is the time of punishment and fulfillment of all that has been written. So there's a Jewish Christian church in Jerusalem the very ones that Paul raised money for and brought in Romans 15 money back uh, to Jerusalem and Judea, the, the Pentecost, those were Jewish Christians that came to faith in Christ. They lived there. It was a Jewish church of Jesus Christ. Those people are living there, followers of Christ. He's telling them what to do. Now let's talk about what actually happened at the destruction of Jerusalem by the Romans. Josephus, a contemporary of, that, of those events, wrote a history and were able to read that history and find out what happened. Rome was the dominant world power at that point. Judea at that time was ruled by Roman procurators, most of whom knew little or nothing about the Jewish religion, which resulted in continuous provocations to the Jewish people, continuous irritations to them concerning religious issues. All right. Well, a group within the city of Jerusalem, within that area of Judea called Zealots, uh, were very active at that time, very patriotic about the Jewish heritage and about the promised land, etc. And they uh, wanted the Romans out, and they convinced the general population there to rise up against Rome and rebel. There were three stages then to the Roman response. 
and the conquest of Judea and Jerusalem in the first century AD. Stages one and two resulted in the Jews surviving and even winning marginal victories. That led to the Jews having a sense of being unconquerable by the Romans. A false sense of being unconquerable, but they weren't. Shortly before Passover in April of the year 70, a powerful Roman general named Titus arrived at Jerusalem with legions to finally put an end to the Jewish revolt and crush the insurrection. Titus encircled the city to prevent help from reaching the Jews and begin this final stage, the very thing Jesus was talking about. During this time, those who attempted to flee were either prevented from doing so, killed by the Jewish zealous factions within the city, or captured by the Romans, tortured and crucified outside the city as a warning to those still inside the city. The Romans built an embankment or rampart around the city just as Jesus had foretold they would do. Titus' soldiers breached the third outer wall of Jerusalem on May 25th of the year 70 and captured the newer portions of the city of Jerusalem. By June, the siege had progressed into the second walled area and the Jewish people retreated behind that last wall that protected the city. The fortress of Antonia was taken by Titus on July 22nd followed by the Romans setting fires to the gates of the temple against the desires of Titus, their commanding general. During the attack, a soldier threw a firebrand through a window into one of the temple's side chambers, followed by a second firebrand being thrown into the holy place, which set the whole sanctuary ablaze. All Jewish resistance in the city was quelled by September 26 in the year 70. Now, according to Josephus, 1.1 million Jews were killed during that campaign. Staggering number. 97,000 Jews were taken into captivity by the Romans. Over the next three years, the temple stones were dismantled entirely. Every stone involved in the temple was leveled to the ground, which Josephus describes saying it was so thoroughly laid even to the ground that by those that dug it up to the foundation that there was nothing left to make those that came later believe there had ever been a building there. So that's complete fulfillment of Jesus' prophecy. Uh, Caesar eventually gave orders to level everything else with the exception of what we can still see today. Part of one of the external walls, not directly connected with the temple but near it, was left to, to demonstrate what kind of city the Romans had defeated and as a display of Roman power. That is the famous wailing wall that Jews from all over the world go pray in front of, and many of them, I believe, are praying for a rebuilding of the temple. All right, so given those horrors that were coming, Jesus gave his people living in Judea a prophetic warning. When you see the indications, run for your lives. So Mark 13 is, uh, is Jesus' warning for them to flee when they see the city surrounded by soldiers. Now there is no record uh, at all in church history or by Josephus of Christians in Judea and what happened with them. We have no record. Uh, however, we have to imagine that many of the church did in fact heed Jesus' warning and ran for their lives. Uh, when the time was right. They fled from Jerusalem. Now, that would have been the exact opposite of what many of the Jews would have been doing when they heard that the Roman legions were marching in. They're going to run to the fortress for the preservation of their lives. That makes perfect sense. The Christians are running the opposite direction. And as I said, the destruction of Jerusalem in the year 70 
just a dress rehearsal for the final desolations. The end of the world, because of their ongoing rejection of Jesus as the Christ, the spiritual desolation of Israel has continued in every generation since. Every generation, there's been a small remnant within that generation of Jewish people who believe in Jesus. Call them Messianic Jews or completed Jews, etc. Every generation, there's been some, as predicted in Romans 11. But the general population of Jewish people have not re received Jesus as Lord and Savior. And so the desolation continues. The rebuilding of the temple would be a consummation of that desolation. It's a direct affront to God and to Jesus saying, you're not the Messiah, your death means nothing. We want to reestablish the old covenant animal sacrifices. And so they yearn to obey the law of Moses and they are able, I believe, by reading the 70 weeks prophecy and other predictions in the book of Daniel and other places to rebuild the temple. They're able to get what they want. How that would be with the Dome of the Rock and all that is hard to see. But it seems like the Antichrist, the ruler of the people who is to come in Daniel 9.26, will in Daniel 9.27 confirm a covenant with many for one seven, a seven-year period. In the middle of the seven, three and a half years in, he'll put an end to sacrifice and offering. So that implies sacrifice and offerings going on for the first half of that last seven-year period. And on a wing of the temple, he will set up an abomination that causes desolation until the end that is decreed is poured out on him. So those are the predictions that we look through, etc. So let's talk about the danger that causes the flight. The basic concept is Christ's people must run because we can't handle the temptation of that moment. Consistently in the Lord's Prayer, we pray, lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. So you're to avoid temptation. You're not to show how powerful and strong you are by stepping right into the fire of temptation and resisting it. No, run. Get out of there. Very clear example and parallel of this is found the night that Jesus was arrested. In John 17, Jesus prays to the Father concerning the elect. He said, I have not lost any of all that you have given me. He prays specifically that. Now, as you read that in John 17, you know he's not lost them spiritually. They still believe in him. They still are trusting in Jesus. So he's not lost any of them. And he won't. But then in John 18, as the uh, detachment of 600 uh, soldiers comes and, and they're there to arrest Jesus, Jesus goes out and confronts them and asks them who they've come to arrest. He takes the initiative. Who are you looking for? Jesus of Nazareth. Jesus says, I am. And at that moment, they draw back and fall to the ground. That's his name. He's God. He says, I am. And they fall on the ground. Again, Jesus asked them a second time, who are you looking for? <laughs> they pick themselves up off the ground and answer like robots, Jesus of Nazareth. Jesus said, I've told you that I am. If you're looking for me, then let these men go. Speaking about his apostles. Then John comments, John 18 and verse 9. This happened so that the words that Jesus had spoken would be fulfilled. I have not lost any of all that you have given me. Do you realize the significance of that? If they were arrested physically, they would have been lost spiritually. They weren't ready to be tortured. They weren't ready to die. They weren't ready to be crucified. They weren't ready and they would have been lost. And so Jesus makes a way of escape for them to get out. And they all ran away at that moment. All of them, including Peter. Jesus knows that there are some trials so great our faith can't handle it. 
Now, Peter, in his arrogance that night, did a U-turn and followed at a distance, and you saw what happened to him. Within a short amount of time, Satan had maneuvered it so that Peter denied ever even having heard of Jesus. That's hours later. Don't think you're so mighty, so strong, your faith is so you can handle anything. And so Jesus says to his people, run for your lives, run for your souls, get out of there. How much greater will the trial be when Antichrist is ruling the world through the direct power of Satan and the secret police and the ones chasing are directly demonically instructed? Where are you going to hide? It's a time of utter carnage, of martyrdom like has never been seen before. That's what it's going to be like. The beast of Revelation 13 and verse 1, it says, The dragon stood on the shore of the sea, and I saw a beast coming up out of the sea. Revelation 13, 2, The dragon gave the beast his power and his throne and great authority. And we've seen in multiple places, the beast, the Antichrist, is able to do great signs and wonders. To deceive, Jesus says, the elect, even the elect, if that were possible. The Antichrist will rule the earth and conquer the saints physically. It says in Revelation 13, 5 through 8, the beast was given a mouth to utter proud words and blasphemies and to exercise his authority for 42 months. That's three and a half years. He opened his mouth to blaspheme God and to slander his name and his dwelling place and those who live in heaven. He was given power to make war against the saints and to conquer them. That's exactly what's taught in Daniel 7 as well. What does that mean? There's going to be dead Christians. Lots of believers, saints, slaughtered by the beast. And he was given authority over every tribe, people, language, and nation. So he, that's the one world government ruling every nation on earth, one God. All the inhabitants of the earth will worship the beast. So that's the consummation of wicked government and it's the consummation of wicked religion focused on this one person. All the inhabitants of the earth will worship the beast. All whose names have not been written in the book of life belong to the lamb that was slain from the creation of the world. So the non-elect. Basically then one world government and one world religion at that point. Far too powerful for any person to resist. Now, Antichrist's specific enemies at that point are Jews and Christians. And so this deception leads to the final destruction, and so we must run. Revelation 14, 9 through 12 says, A third angel followed them and said in a loud voice, If anyone worships the beast and his image and receives his mark on the forehead or on the hand, he too will drink the wine of God's fury, which has been poured full strength into the cup of his wrath. He'll be tormented with burning sulfur in the presence of the holy angels and of the Lamb, and the smoke of their torment rises forever and ever. There is no rest day or night for those who worship the beast and his image or for anyone who receives the mark of his name. Revelation 14, 12. This calls for patient endurance on the part of the saints who obey God's commands and remain faithful to Jesus. So in other words, that's a call to patiently endure that temptation. And the temptation is to receive the mark of the beast and worship him as God for the preservation of your life. So therefore, Jesus says in verse 13, he who stands firm to the end will be saved. So that's the danger, the desperation that characterized the fight. We'll look at the verses. Verse 14 through 19. Then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. Let no one on the roof of his house go down or enter the house to take anything out. 
Let no one in the field go back to get his cloak. How dreadful it would be in those days for pregnant women and nursing mothers. Pray that this will not take place in the winter because those will be days of distress unequal from the beginning when God created the world until now and never to be equaled again. There's a sense of immense urgency in these verses. Do you get it as you read it? There's a, a breathless pace here. No earthly possessions worth your soul. You won't have time, you think about the flat roofs uh, back then, you won't have time to go down from that flat roof down into the first floor of the house to get anything out. There's not time for that. Someone working out in the field doesn't have time to go back and get a, a garment, a cloak. There's not time for that. And it's dreadful, says Jesus, for those who can't run fast. Pregnant women or nursing mothers. It's all about running for your lives with murderous enemies nipping at your heels. Pray for an easement of circumstances. Pray that it won't take place in the winter when it's harder to run. Or on the Sabbath, Matthew adds. Because it would be harder to, to, to travel at that point. Anything that would slow down the flight would be a detriment. And he says, unequal distress. Those would be days of distress, unequal from the beginning when God created the world until now, never to be equaled again. Uh, KJV, ESV, NSB all use the words great tribulations. That's where you get the expression, the trib great tribulation. It comes right from that verse. The destination of the flight, verse 14. Then the, those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. So the mountains, perhaps caves, crags, hiding places. Luke 23, 30. Then they will say to the mountains, fall on us, and to the hills cover us. Looking for a hiding place from the forces of Antichrist, the forces of the, the, the desolator that sets up the abomination of desolation whether the Romans in 87 or Antichrist at the end of the world. And so looking for mountain hiding places in Judea. You think about Masada, it was a mountainous area, and the Jews held out for a number of years after the fall of uh, Jerusalem, probably another two or three years. And it's very hard to get to, and so a place where you can hide. And the purpose at that point, at the end of the world, is to wait for the Lord's coming and to count the days. All right, what's the duration of the flight? Well, if those days, verse 20, had not been, if the Lord had not cut short those days, no one would survive. But for the sake of the elect whom he has chosen, he has shortened them. It's a terrible time. Now, you have to read the whole of the scripture to understand how terrible it is. You have to read the book of Revelation. You have to read the, the, uh, the trumpet judgments in Revelation, which has ecological disasters unlike anything that had ever been seen before. The, the, bowl the, the trumpet judgments and then the bowl judgments. It's going to be hard to live on planet Earth. A third of the drinking water polluted. A third of the, of the seas polluted. A third of the living creatures dead. Uh, trees burned. Grass burned. It's an ecological horror show. Which leads, I think, to the one world government. That's the cause of it, I believe. And so, it's so bad, and the slaughter focused on believers in Jesus is so bad, and the martyrdom is so, the machine of martyrdom is so great, Jesus has to ask, will there be faith on earth when he returns? There have to be some believers left when he comes back. And so the days are counted out, and he says, short. And if they continued on even a few more days or weeks, no one would be left. And that's what I think brings 
for me, the full understanding of the mystery in Revelation 12, 11, and 12. From the time that the daily sacrifice is abolished and the abomination that causes desolation is set up, there will be 1,290 days. Blessed is the one who waits for and reaches the end of the 1,335 days. Because Revelation 12 is talking about the general resurrection of both the righteous and the wicked, it says in verse 2 and 3, multitudes who sleep in the dust of the earth will awake. That's the second coming. Some to everlasting life, others to shame and everlasting contempt. Those who are wise will shine like the brightness of the heavens and those who lead many to righteousness like their stars forever and ever. It's the end of the world. So then the counting of the days, 1290 days and 1335 days goes ahead. It's not talking about Antiochus. It's not talking even about the Romans. It's talking about a general resurrection to heaven or hell and the end of the world in Daniel 12. So at that time of the Antichrist, when God's people are hiding in caves, trying to survive, demonically instructed and led Gestapo-type folks are searching them out to martyr them. In the midst of that, when they're counting the days, Jesus returns for his bride. He returns to rescue her and protect her so that there will be faith on earth when he returns. And who are the elect Jesus had in mind for the sake of the elect? Those days will be shortened. Well, elect are... People chosen from Jews and Gentiles to believe in him. But I believe this is the consummation of the whole story of the Jewish nation. It's the consummation of their salvation. It's been a long journey. A long journey between Jesus and the sons and daughters of Abraham. The biological descendants. And that consummation, I believe, is revealed in a mystery in Romans chapter 11, verse 25 through 27. I do not want you to be ignorant of this mystery, brothers, so that you may not be conceited. Israel has experienced a hardening in part until the full number of Gentiles has come in, and so all Israel will be saved. As it is written, the deliverer, the deliverer will come from Zion. He will turn godlessness away from Jacob. Those, those are incredibly important words. And he's going to drive godlessness, atheism, unbelief from the Jewish nation. And what's there instead? Faith in Christ. Just in time. And again, Zechariah 12.10. And I will pour out on the house of David and the inhabitants of Jerusalem a spirit of grace and supplication, and they will look on me, the one they have pierced, and they will mourn for him as one mourns for an only child and grieve bitterly for him as one grieves for a firstborn son. This, this is directly quoted by the Apostle John in the account of Jesus in his death. They will look on him whom they have pierced. But they haven't looked yet, have they? Not by faith. At the end, in Revelation 12.10, God is going to pour out a spirit of grace on them and they will look finally to Jesus and trust. Those are the people Jesus is coming back to rescue, among others. All right, what is the destiny beyond the flight? All right, verse 24 through 27. But in those days following that distress, the sun will be darkened and the moon will not give its light. The stars will fall from the sky and the heavenly bodies will be shaken. At that time, men will see the Son of Man coming in the clouds with power and great glory, and he will send his angels and gather his elect from the four winds from the ends of the earth to the ends of the heavens. More next week. That's the second coming. All right, so this morning as I was thinking about application, I wrote out some, and at the top I wrote two words. So what? So what? Run for your life. The overwhelming majority, if not every single person sitting here, will probably not have to run for your life unless you're planning a move to Judea. 
And if you're going to go live in Judea, then you might want to pay more special attention to this injunction and run for your lives. But it would have to be at the time when the abomination of desolation is set up. So how do we take this to heart? Well, first of all, salvation is a fleeing. Salvation itself is a fleeing. But it's a fleeing of far greater terror than anything Satan or the Antichrist could ever orchestrate. John the Baptist said to his enemies, you brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? All right, well, what's the wrath to come? It's Almighty God, the omnipotent God, pouring out his wrath on his enemies. But where are you going to hide from God? I mean, it's one thing to try to hide from Satan and from demonically uh, instructed agents. How do you hide from an omnipresent, omnipotent, omniscient God? Well, there is a refuge, and that refuge is Jesus Christ. The cross of Christ is the refuge. That's where you flee, but you've got to do it now. You've got to do it today. Today is the day of salvation. Now's the time to flee the wrath to come. When it comes, it will be too late. And so therefore, look again to the cross of Christ. Understand what was really going on there. Look with eyes of faith and say the reason Jesus died on the cross is to forgive a sinner like me. Repent of your sins, trust in him, and you'll find forgiveness. He will be your refuge. As the book of Proverbs says, the name of the Lord is a strong tower. The righteous run and are kept safe. So run to Christ. Flee to him while there's time. Second of all, understand where world history is going. We're going to an orchestrated, planned out, scripted destination. And it's been enough information has been given in the books of the Bible. So understand we're going somewhere. Understand, Revelation 13 says, the beast from the sea will rule the whole earth. So even if you don't live in Judea, the same force that's hunting our brothers and sisters down in that geographical region will be ruling the whole world. And he will hate your faith as much as he hates theirs. The mark of the beast is worldwide, not just for Judea or those living in Jerusalem. And no elect person will ever receive it. And why not? Because we know what it is and we know not to do it. And the essence of it is that we will not bow our knee to a creature and worship that creature as God. We're not going to worship and serve the Antichrist as God, which will make us his enemies. So know where all this is heading. His government is going to rule the whole earth. It says in Revelation 3.10, I will keep you from the hour of testing that's going to come on the whole earth. So it's not just Judea. It's coming all, all over the whole world. So understand. Just understand where that's going. Third of all, you could say, why should I care what happens to those living in Judea and Jerusalem? Well, because you're part of the body of Christ. And it says in 1 Corinthians 12, 26, if one part of the body suffers, the whole body suffers with it. So we should care what happens to people who are being persecuted in other parts, even today, even now. Spirit of the Antichrist is at work now, whether the Antichrist is on earth now. So we are a unity. We, as the body of Christ, we should care what happens to those that are being persecuted. And though it may not be that it will happen in your lifetime, it may well happen in your children's lifetime. Right? may well happen in your grandchildren's lifetime or your great-grandchildren's lifetime. Someone will be alive who needs to know this information in order to save their lives and their souls. And Paul says concerning these eschatological details, in 2 Thessalonians 2, he said, don't you remember that when I was with you, I kept telling you these things? 
So Paul thought this was important enough to teach as part of his body of doctrine and part of body of teaching that he taught to the Thessalonians. So I think it's important for you all as well. So it is complicated. Immerse yourself in it. Flee to Christ. I could do other things right now and say flee temptations and all that. That would be a good preaching point, but it doesn't line up with the eschatology we're talking about today. So, but if you want to take that good, flee sin this week. That's a good idea. But foundationally to eschatology, learn these facts, teach them to your kids and grandkids. Let's be ready. Close with me in prayer. Father, we thank you for the depths of the riches and the wisdom and the knowledge of God as revealed in Scripture. It is not easy to follow these things, not easy to understand it. Father, I pray that you would please press to our hearts the truth that we've heard today. And even if it doesn't directly apply to us so that we ourselves have to run for our lives physically in fulfillment of these words, help us to understand these words so that they have the right shaping effect on our our theology, our understanding of history, our understanding of government, of Satan, of brothers and sisters in Christ, of the Jewish nation, of all of these themes that we've addressed. Thank you for Christ. Thank you that Jesus died to take the wrath of God so that we would not have to. It's in his name we pray. Amen. Hi, this is Andy Davis. I hope that you've enjoyed this sermon. For more of my resources, please go to twojourneys.org. And may the Lord Jesus Christ bless you as you continue to serve him.